Hello, this is Terrence McNally. We lost an American hero in the past few days with the death of Daniel Ellsberg, whose release of the Pentagon Papers in 1971 revealed the cynical realities of the perpetrators of the Vietnam War. A president was abusing the power of his office, ignoring the will of the people, the Congress, and the courts, promising peace while planning war without end. Ellsberg, a military analyst at the Rand Corporation, risked life in prison to end a war he helped plan for which Henry Kissinger called him the most dangerous man in America. To his last days, Daniel Ellsberg was an idealist and a truth teller. His actions did not end the war, at least not as quickly as he had hoped, but they did change history. Here is our conversation, recorded in September 2009. Daniel Ellsberg is an American hero. Uh, September 23rd will be the 40th anniversary of his first night of copying the Pentagon Papers, which he took from the safe at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California, and released to the, uh, to the public, and uh, released to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ultimately 17 newspapers. Um, America was embroiled, see if this sounds familiar, in a dirty war based on lies, a president was abusing the power of his office, ignoring the will of the people, Congress, and the courts, promising peace while planning war without end. And Daniel Ellsberg, a military analyst, leaked the truth about the Vietnam War to the Times. He risked life in prison, and he knew he was doing so, to end a war that he helped plan. Henry Kissinger called Daniel Ellsberg the most dangerous man in America. Well, he's still at it. This week, Ellsberg begins the online publication of the American Doomsday Memoir, his memoir of the nuclear error. And you can learn more about all of this at ellsberg.net. That's E-L-L-S-B-E-R-G.net. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, and provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, all based on the fact I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg is a former American military analyst employed by the Rand Corporation who precipitated the national uproar in 71 when he released the Pentagon Papers. The release awakened the American people to how much they'd been deceived by their own government about the war. Ellsberg is the author of three books, Papers on the War, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, and Risk ambiguity and decision. And as I said, his next book will actually be serialized, if you will, online at truthdig.com and at his own website, ellsberg.net. And that will be a, uh, f uh, a more than 40-year memoir of America and uh, nuclear weapons. Welcome, Dan Ellsberg, to KPFK and Free Forum. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And, and can I say that that introduction is really, I want to congratulate you on it. Terence, the this, the statement of the analogy between Vietnam and today is quite chilling and very well stated. I I'd like to get a transcript of it. In fact, <laughs> okay, that will be easy, and we'll also we'll you know there will be a podcast both 
at my website, uh, terrymcnally.net, and at the uh, KPFK website, uh, kpfk.org, which you can link to from ellsberg.net. One um, small correction, the, uh, the memoir as a whole, which, by the way, it isn't as though I've written it already and it's coming out serially. I'll be writing it as it comes out, first installment this week on truthdig.com and my website. But uh, it's entitled The American Doomsday Machine. And the, uh, oh. the, first, the first installment has the title American Planning for 100 Holocausts. Very good. Um, I like listeners to get a feel for the people. Uh, behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So I always start out with a question about someone's life or their path and so on. But I'm going to do even more than that this time, uh, Daniel, because I was not familiar with your biography until I looked at the uh, DVD of The Most Dangerous Man in America, the documentary that uh, opens in L.A. later this month, and until I really did started doing research for this show. And I, um, you already had a stellar career. You were, as uh, David Halberstam uh, would have said, one of the best and the brightest um, in that era of the uh, Kennedy administration. And I want to trace your path up to your decision to take the action to release the papers, because I think it really, uh, it's both a personal transformation, but it really uh, says something about uh, uh, American culture uh, during those years. So, let me just, I'm going to read a little, uh, a, a touch from the uh, bio and ask for you to expand on that. Uh, you graduated Harvard in 1952, B.A. summa cum laude, economics, and then studied at King's College, Cambridge on a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship. Then you spent three years in the Marines. Um, why did you join the Marines? And this was 54 to 57, so this is just post-Korean War. Well, the Korean emergency was still on, so... I got a I got a ribbon oh. in uniform. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to Korea. The the fighting was pretty much over by the time I got in. In a way, uh, the reason that I went in the Marines was that I had been deferred. The war started, of course, in 1950 when I was in college. But like most of my friends in college, we got a deferment until uh, I graduated in '52, a college deferment. And then I got another one to go to King's College, Cambridge. So having been deferred for three years and feeling that someone else had gone in my place, uh, I'd always assumed that I would volunteer as soon as that that undergrad that schoolwork was done. And I just felt it my responsibility to go. Uh, not all my classmates had that same feeling. I found later. I don't. I don't know what the difference was. But anyway, <laughs> it did seem to me that it was my responsibility to go. So I wanted to. Uh, be in the service and do something different from what I'd be doing the rest of my life. Uh, I was offered a commission in the Air Force by somebody who said I could get it to do the kind of economics work, linear programming and analysis of various kinds that I would figure I would be doing as an economist later, which is what I expected to be. And I thought, no, if I'm going to be in the service, let's do it. And uh, I'll go in the Marines, I'll be in the infantry. I signed up for the infantry. As a matter of fact, in my 1,100 members of my of my uh, basic school class at Quantico, I believe that something like a thousand signed up for the uh, motor corps or uh, artillery or something like that, and uh, a, a small number of us actually signed up for the infantry, which is where we all ended up. Everybody ended up in that. But uh, I had I I enjoyed my time in the Marines very much, and I extended for a year actually, because the Suez crisis was 
just heating up as I, in 56, as I was due to get out and go back to Harvard as a member of the Society of Fellows. So I, I had to um, give up that society and to extend in the Marine Corps for a year to be with my battalion in case there was a war in the Middle East. And I did get the fellowship back. Uh, I had to reapply when I got out of the Marines. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, the Suez Crisis did, of course, blow up while I was in. And I was with the 6th Fleet in the battalion assigned to the 6th Fleet at that time. And I hadn't liked the prospect that there might be combat with a battalion that I'd, for which I'd been the training officer at one point, the operations training officer. I'd also been a rifle company commander in it. So I hated the idea that uh, people I'd trained and worked with might be in combat while I'd be back in Harvard reading, reading about it in the newspapers. That's why I extended in it. Okay, let me let me ask you one thing. So, okay, so in 57, you get out of the Marines, as you say, having gone in because you felt it was your duty um, as a young American. And then you go to Harvard, and um, your work, uh, you go to Harvard in 62, you were in your PhD in 62, your work on something called the Ellsberg Paradox is still considered a landmark in decision theory and behavioral economics. What was that? If there's a way to tell it briefly, that's a little hard to describe. It's not my title for it. The uh, there was a theory of decision making under uncertainty. What was reasonable? What was rational? Uh, appropriate to do in situations where you don't know with certainty the consequences of your actions. So there's a lot of uncertainty, which is just about all the time. And I was particularly looking at situations that were unusually uncertain, where there was a lot of controversy. What I called ambiguity where you either had very little information or uh, conflicting information. a lot of information, yeah. but it was contradictory, yeah. such as either WMDs in uh, Iraq. Exactly. A good example, is Iran really on a nuclear weapons program? Uh, you hear quite different pieces of information, and not a whole lot of information in any case. So there's a lot of uncertainty. My thesis really uh, argued, and it's been pretty well accepted now, uh, in, in a field that's now called behavioral economics, that uh, the the existing theory, Bayesian theory, of what to do in those circumstances was inappropriate, was wrong. It wasn't what was reasonable in all cases to do. And people who believed in that theory almost as a religion, a uh, set of ethical principles, found it very paradoxical that ordinary, reasonable people would actually violate their rules. I didn't find it paradoxical. I thought it was the reasonable thing to do. Right, and this is that, that whole thing that seems to me everything I learn about economics is that um, economics is a game played within certain assumptions. And, and, and oftentimes, if those assumptions aren't borne out in the real world, then the real world's wrong <laughs> and the assumptions... Well, uh, economists have really dealt inadequately with uncertainty, as with a lot of other things. And uh, to, to an extent that I find the idea of Nobel Prizes in economics something of a joke, uh, it's not a science to that level at all, as we've just seen from the absurd collapse, not only of the financial sector, but of the theorists, the economists, exactly. who uh, assuring us that there was no problem. Right. And by the way, that Nobel Prize, you probably know this, Daniel, is not uh, an official uh, aware, prize yeah. given by the Nobel. It's, it's by some other group that thought economists should get in on the act. <laughs> Let me tell it people that... Worthy. It had some very smart people oh, yeah. uh, get it. But uh, I'd say the prize as a whole, uh, in the sense that it suggests it's a science, in the sense of in the uh, physics, know, the chemistry, that chemistry, sort of thing. Yeah. Physics, that's absurd. Yeah, as we've just seen from the, as I say, from right, 
real collapse of economic theories uh, mm-hmm. last year. Yep. I'm Terry McNally. I'm speaking with Daniel Ellsberg. Forty years ago, he released the Pentagon Papers, uh, one of the great whistleblowing acts of, uh, of, of, of the last century. There's a documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, and uh, a memoir uh, at his site, Ellsberg.net, and also at uh, truthdig.com, Bob Shear's wonderful website, uh, is called The American Doomsday Machine, and it's a, uh, a long-term memoir of the nuclear era in America. This is Free Forum. To learn more about Dan's work, ellsberg.net. To learn more about my work and uh, uh, sign up for podcasts and weekly announcements, terrymcnally.net. Um, let me, so we've taken you through the, uh, your, your, you've, so you've done your college, you've done your military, you've done your PhD, and then you become a strategic analyst in 59 at the RAND Corporation, a consultant to the Defense Department and the White House. Um, at that point, you're not dealing with the Vietnam War, which is uh, yet to uh, even emerge uh, for, for, for advisors, I think, at that point. But you are drafting guidance from Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara to the Joint Chiefs of Staff on operational plans for general nuclear war. Speak about that experience. Well, the way I got into that at the Rand Corporation initially and then as a consultant was that uh, I found the problem, one of the problems they were working with at the Rand Corporation when I arrived there, at first as a summer consultant in 58, was uh, how to assure that there would be uh, the capability to retaliate to a Soviet surprise attack. Uh, That was for the years of the so-called missile gap when it was intelligence estimates were predicting that the Soviets would very shortly have an enormous superiority in missiles with which they might be able to disarm entirely our ability to retaliate, and that would tempt them perhaps to a first strike, to a surprise attack. So the problem I worked on for years, uh, starting when I went to RAND, was how to deter, how to prevent any nuclear war from occurring under the assumption that the real risk was a Soviet surprise attack and how to assure them that there would be a retaliation, that we have the capability to retaliate. Well, our system at that time was based on uh, planes to start with, uh, later missiles, but in either case, uh, the idea of retaliating, uh, if you waited until all the enemy, the Soviet warheads arrived, you might not have anything left to retaliate with. So the problem was when and at, at what point to get your planes off the ground so they wouldn't be caught on the ground. And likewise for the early missiles, especially before they were in hardened silos. So the question arose then, uh, how, at what point should the president, on the basis of electronic warning, radar warning, or infrared warning, uh, getting information that was inevitably, as I would put it, ambiguous, the way I've just described, because uh, it could be false alarms. It could be <laughs> some of these warnings came in from flocks of geese or mm-hmm. our signals bouncing off the moon. It, literally, that, that actually happened, uh, indicating an enemy attack. If you got this warning, you wouldn't be sure that you were really being attacked. Uh, the, the system just had that shortcoming. At what point, then, should the president decide that the evidence was strong enough to actually launch this irrevocable act of, uh, of launching all our missiles or our planes. So it was the, a decision under uncertainty and the most fraught, uh, dangerous decision in the history of the species. And I set out to find out how to reduce the ambiguity and, and how, in general, you could decrease the dangers of that situation. So that it seems like it's a, it's a uh, 
you know, a pretty uh, sensible outgrowth from your, your work uh, on your Ph.D., um, can you say anything about – we're going to talk more about uh, nuclear issues in the second half of the show when we talk about your, your memoir. But can you at this moment say a little bit about your mindset as you were doing this? By, by that, I, I think you can probably imagine where I'm going. In other words – Well, let me get ahead. I'll, for yeah. the benefit of this, I'll, uh, I'll be willing to <laughs> uh, forecast a little – What's going to be in this uh, memoir? In later, later sure. of this memoir, at the time I le- uh, went, as I said, in fifty-eight, fifty-nine, sixty, uh, there really was a belief that the Soviets could launch, could launch, even at that time, and, and even more in the future, a devastating surprise attack against the U.S., a kind of Pearl Harbor attack that would put in question our ability to retaliate at all. So the mindset was a very intense and urgent one. Uh, it kept me working probably 70 hours a week, late at night and on weekends at RAND, trying to get a grip on how we could um, reduce, how we could make it mad, insane, uh, irrational for the Soviets ever to launch such an attack because of the consequences they'd have to expect. And at, at best, uh, given the head start that we thought the Russians had on us, and which they had indicated by getting a Sputnik up before we could and by getting heavy missiles into the air before we could. Uh, it did seem as though they were ahead of us. And the idea was maybe there's, we'll do our best, but there may be no way to avoid this war in the future. We'll just do the best we can. So I was looking at apocalypse, uh, Armageddon, uh, coming any time. I, I even remember, uh, well, maybe it takes too long, but... I could say I was sitting at the Rand Corporation in our then buildings, which were overlooked Muscle Beach in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. a block away, looking out uh, late at night, around 11 or 12, as I was working there usually, and reading, uh, reading a, a secret document. I don't think it was top secret, just secret analysis, saying that the best time for a Soviet attack would be a moonless night where submarines could, could surface and launch missiles. Uh, from short range with low warning, uh, avoiding our our radar warning net, by the way, uh, off the West Coast as well as East Coast against our command posts and our missiles. And I was reading this, that this would be in a moonless night later. (laughs) And I looked out the window, and it was a moonless night. I was looking out at the ocean. And, uh, you know, you you hear this expression of the hair rising on the back of your head. I've never felt that physically, but my memory is that that's the way it felt, that my head was bristling hair as I looked out at that. And I could just imagine those missiles arcing up from submarines at any moment. And that was the the mood that uh, we were pretty much all in. At Rand, it was we felt very important that we were doing sure? very important work that was going to prevent this war from happening and save the world and save America, uh, and might or might not succeed. We were doing our best. We were using our best capabilities. So it was a very uh, exhilarating time, as well as a, a, and and exciting intellectually and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, this is uh, free form. I'm Terry McNally. I'm speaking with Daniel Ellsberg. He's the uh, man who. One of the great whistleblowers released the Pentagon Papers. Uh, there's a documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America. So for more information on that, you go to ellsberg.net or mostdangerousmaninamerica.com. Am I correct about that one? Sounds right. Yeah, I think so. Okay, now what's interesting is you're just telling me you're working at RAND, uh, trying to prevent nuclear war, and then I find out you were a member of two of the three working groups reporting to the executive committee of the National Security Council during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Uh, 
Talk a bit about that. Well, that's right. Uh, it leaps over something I was going to mention in a minute here, but in the missile crisis, I was called, actually, from Washington from a colleague of mine, <clears throat> former former colleague from Rand, who was now in the Defense Department, to come help them uh, the day that the president spoke on um, announcing the blockade of Cuba. It was it followed about a week of secret decision-making after they had discovered that the missiles were being constructed in Cuba. And then on a Monday, uh, the President Kennedy uh, did announce that the missiles were being constructed secretly and that we were instituting a blockade. And in a very intense time, was about to follow. So I'd done a lot of consulting on just these matters before that, so I was called to help them. And for the next week, until the next Sunday, I spent most nights sleeping, to the extent that I slept at all, on a couch in the international security affairs part of the Pentagon, where I later worked. And here I was as a RAND consultant, but working on these two of three working groups. The third was on Berlin planning. They were expecting this crisis to expand to Berlin. Mm -hmm. And the other two, I was on <laughs> one that was called long-range planning, and that looked two weeks ahead, uh -huh. which sounds funny, although really, from the point of view of the Pentagon and the executive branch, two weeks is pretty much long-term. In that kind of crisis. You usually sure. think of yeah. it in a crisis very much so. And then the other one was short-term. That was the next 48 hours, sort of. And uh, as of Saturday, uh, following the Monday speech, uh, we were working in that one, in ISA, on a probable, possible, probable invasion plans 48 hours away for uh, for Monday. So, again, a very intense time. The reason I was called in part was that I'd worked on command and control problems for a long time, for several years at that point. I was uh, one of the civilian specialists or experts on that. And I had in my head the difference it could make to our retaliatory posture if they were to launch an attack with a limited number of missiles in Cuba. They had up to 38 missiles. Uh, we didn't we didn't get up to that number till late in the week. But uh, what could they do with 10 missiles, intermediate-range missiles, 20 missiles, 30 missiles, given the range? They could hit our command control sites. They could do various things. And that was the kind of thing that I had in my head in those days. I couldn't do it now, for sure. <laughs> I couldn't do those calculations now. But um, then, I, then I could. And so I could, I could help fast. Let me go back for a minute from that. That's in 62. Right. In, uh, in 61, a year earlier, a very startling development occurred. Uh, do we have a minute here? Before yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you. Um, that'll follow on rather quickly from what I was saying earlier. As of June 61 and the summer of 61, the... CIA and the Air Force were still predicting a very major missile gap in favor of the Russians, that they were way ahead of us. They had something, I think the, the estimate was ranged, there was some disagreement, ranged from, a, from about 120 to about 160 missiles. We had 40 mm -hmm. of us in Titan ICBM at that time, plus some Polaris at sea. So, uh, so they had a lot more. But in the Toward the end of the summer, I was at SAC, Strategic Air Command Headquarters in Omaha, uh, talking with him about war plans, so which I had just 
drafted new guidance for, and I was talking about with them about how uh, the guidance uh, was being received at SAC. And the chief of war plans there, Colonel Dave Liebman, said to me, now, do you know what the old man, Thomas Power, who was the commander of SAC, do you know what he thinks they have now? I said, no. A thousand. They had a thousand. And we discussed that. So a thousand versus our 40. One month later, our reconnaissance satellites had completed looking at all the potential sites in Russia. It took them. They had some earlier flights, but didn't cover everything. In mid-September, the new estimate came out, and the estimate was that they had 10 to 25, but that was wrong. That was still an overestimate. Within a few months, and actually I heard at the time, a little early, what they had was four, <laughs> four missiles, not 160, not 1,000. So uh, the, the estimate was... You know, <laughs> Was it 250 times wrong? Yeah. 250 percent, 250 times. The implication was, in other words, they had nothing. Uh, with four missiles, yes, you could hit command and control. That wouldn't do them very much good. You wouldn't have any effect on a retaliatory capability, really. Mm-hmm. They had nothing. It was, in other words, they, the situation was what we discovered in Iraq. Yeah. That instead of having, uh, you know, tons and what is it, hundreds of tons of nerve gas and and can biological warfare and uh, uh, where one little vial would do it. Remember that. Yep. And the missiles where uh, we have Rumsfeld saying we not only know they have them. This is unequivocal. We know where they are. He says on television. There wasn't anything. Yeah. We didn't have any of it. Well, the same was true in 1961. We've been working at Rand for number of people there had been doing it since one could say at least 54 uh, or earlier working on this problem but in the years i'd been there for three years now night and day working on a totally illusory problem a problem that was as illusory as saddam's nuclear program in 19 in 2003 and 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 yet one could say with the stakes uh, much much uh, higher. Yes, uh, we were terribly. It wasn't. It wasn't wrong, and I, I still don't feel uh, that what we were doing was wrong-headed in view of our view of what we thought was the case uh, in terms of the threat we faced. And yet, uh, not to let us or me off the hook that much. How come there was no consideration? And now it's something I haven't mentioned that the army and navy intelligence had been right. It wasn't as though this was totally unknowable any more than the Saddam situation was unknowable, actually. The State Department intelligence had it right about Saddam, and actually they were pretty right on uh, years earlier, uh, as a matter of fact, compared to CIA or the USAF. But the Army and Navy, looking at pretty much the same information, had been saying for, since 58, a few, which was case, or as well described as a few, and we at Rand, just for whatever reason, or because of the influence of the Air Force, which was our sponsor, and the Air Force was, uh, people I know were, were saying to me, those Army and Navy guys are traitors. Oh. They are just for their own service purposes of trying to hold down our Air Force budget and keep us from buying the number of missiles we need, which the Air Force said was 6,000. Uh-huh. And, and then they got down to, that's in the longer run, Maybe ten thousand Minutemen. That's solid fuel missiles. Yeah, yeah. What's 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 interesting, of course, in that thousand, and uh, unhappily, uh, McNamara held them down to a thousand. 
And McNamara confirmed that thousand Minutemen after the new estimate of four. four. They have four. We'll go ahead with a thousand. That that should be adequate. Wow. Well, the other thing that's striking, Daniel, the thing that's striking about that is that the Air Force interprets the Army and Navy as purposely uh, deflating their estimate, but never never understands that there might be some motivation for them. I have to give them credit for sincerity because they really did feel emotionally that the... uh, uh, that the Army and Navy people were literally, for service interests, yep. bureaucratic interests, being treasonous to the interest. Amazing, amazing. Okay, we'll take a brief break here and then be back. I'm Terry McNally, and I'm speaking with Daniel Ellsberg, the uh, uh, whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers, his documentary coming out, uh, and a new memoir being published online. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. Hello, this is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2009 conversation with the late American hero, Daniel Ellsberg. Hello, and I'm Terry McNally, back with you. Uh, This is Free Forum. I'm speaking with Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, Nearly 40 years ago, he threw away a very successful career and risked life imprisonment to publish the uh, Pentagon Papers. And there was a documentary uh, on uh, his actions and his life called The Most Dangerous Man in America. It opens in Santa Monica later this month at the Monica Fourplex. and uh, premieres uh, the 23rd with a benefit. You can learn more about that at themostdangerousmaninamerica.com. You can learn more about Dan's work at ellsberg.net. And he is beginning this week a, uh, a memoir called The American Doomsday Machine, a, a, a insider's memoir of America's nuclear policies that will be published at ellsberg.net and at uh, truthdig.com. You can visit me at terrymcnally.net to learn more about the show, guests, and to sign up for my weekly announcement. Daniel Ellsberg, let's move now. Uh, what we've been uh, uh, dealing with so far, uh, for those who are just tuning in, is um, your, uh, as I said, stellar career uh, prior to the Pentagon Papers. Um, you were sort of at the nexus of, of planning for a lot of what was going on in defense in the Kennedy administration. And now in, uh, you joined the Defense Department in 64 as a special assistant to the, undersecretary, the Assistant Secretary of Defense, and you begin working on the escalation of the war in Vietnam. You then transfer to the State Department in 65 so that you can actually serve two years at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Um, describe your exp- those two experiences uh, and what happened when you actually were on the ground in Saigon that might have influenced your further actions. Well, I came into the Pentagon as a full-time employee at the highest civil service grade. It was called a super grade, GS-18. And the people in the Pentagon uh, that I was working with may well have wondered why this young guy was at this rate. Let's see, I was 33, uh, because I certainly didn't show the background in what I was assigned to work on, which was on Vietnam. And I really had very little background in any such thing. As we've just been saying, the reason I came in at that rate was that I had had an, uh, at a high-level involvement in nuclear war planning, uh, which looked like a quite different subject at that yeah. point, and that was my that was my expertise, if any. And I, if anything, I was learning on the job when it came in to the Pentagon. But my boss uh, wanted me. John McNaughton, Assistant Secretary, said that I would be working most of the time on Vietnam. And the incentive he gave me to come into this field, which uh, with which I really wasn't very familiar was that I had been working since the missile crisis in 1962, analyzing nuclear crises and how to reduce the danger that the world would blow up in such a crisis. 
And as he put it to me, I was doing that as a consultant, as a researcher, but from within the government, I'd have the chance to get a very different view of how a crisis really involved. And he said, this is an ongoing crisis. Uh, Vietnam. Vietnam is an ongoing crisis, and you can see it from inside. And he certainly did uh, follow through on that in giving me access to everything. Now, what I learned in the Pentagon was something very relevant to what's going on right now, I'm certain, in, uh, in Afghanistan and uh, perhaps Pakistan, as it was uh, very relevant to our getting into Iraq. Uh, in both those cases, in all these cases, well, in Iraq in particular, like in Vietnam, we were essentially lied into the war. Congress was lied into it by the executive branch, of which I was part. Uh, and that, that was possible because people like me, by the hundreds and thousands, who knew what was actually being planned and what was happening in the Pentagon, could be relied on to keep our mouths shut as the public was lied to about that and as it was concealed from the public. And very specifically, one point that I'm certain applies to, to Afghanistan right now, the picture given to the public at the time, uh, over the years in Vietnam, and for many years thereafter, was that the president had, had effectively been conned himself or seduced into getting into Vietnam bit by bit by military who were telling him that the next 20,000 troops, the next 30,000 troops, would make all the difference. And in that sense, it was a quagmire that people went into sort of with their eyes shut. Right. As, as we, uh, from that era, recall, uh, West, Westmoreland would... never true. But Westmoreland would keep saying, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and 20,000 troops will get well, us to that, that light. The yeah. light was, the, the military were telling him yeah. that the light is just ahead, if we right. just move ahead. They were never telling him that. They were always saying, yes, it was winnable, but with 500,000 troops, total bombing, 700,000 troops, a million was a figure mentioned as early as 1965. But I realized that uh, from working on this in the Pentagon, that the President Johnson was prepared to tell the public in July of 1965 that we were sending 50,000 troops when secretly he had agreed to the request for an immediate sending of 100,000 troops. Wow. And he did that year after year. Uh, the public was never really told that the military regarded this as unwinnable at the state we were actually at at that moment, winnable only with a very, very much longer and bigger investment. I'm certain that is the case today in Afghanistan. The similarities in the politics and the military aspects of the situation are so similar. I think of it as Vietnamistan right now. Right. And not only in the field, but in Washington. The, the requirements in the field are very similar to, to Vietnam, the situation there. But I'm sure that the lying and deception we're getting right now from this new administration is exactly equivalent to the Democratic administration I served with. And here's what I'm, let's just say, guessing, but it's a very strong guess. Uh, when I'm certain, I can be wrong. That's happened over and over. I'm very aware of that. I'm just saying that, relatively speaking, I am relatively certain of the following, that the military are not telling Barack Obama that he will have any very ambitious kind of success at all with another 30,000 troops, or another 50,000 troops. I feel very sure that he's hearing that if you want to have any really lasting effect there, 
or very successful effect in defeating the Taliban, and they do use words like winning and defeating, even though they're unwilling to define it. If you want to do that, you've got to send hundreds of thousands of troops. In fact, I think that I, I vaguely remember that the Rand Corporation has done some studies within the last couple of years that suggest just that, that you're talking about hundreds of thousands of troops. Uh, and I would uh, trust them on that. Uh, whether you'd succeed with hundreds of thousands is another matter, but I would trust them that you're not going to succeed in any significant sense with less than that. And I think the public should be told that because and that means that uh, people at Rand, if they believe that, should not keep that to themselves and not just tell it to the client. Not just tell it to the client. That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. Right. That the real uh, client is out. us. Uh, now, since I read it, I think in this case I'll give them credit. I think they did put out a public right. report. Well, that's, that's really interesting. I'm Terry McNally. This is Free Forum. I'm speaking with Daniel Ellsberg. You know him as the man who released the Pentagon Papers in 1971. But what we're talking about right now is his time as an advisor on the war in Vietnam prior to the release of those papers and his... Um, his estimation, his prediction, his certain, uh, as he puts it, um, uh, sense that something very similar is happening right now. And let me just uh, echo what you said. In other words, it's not that the military isn't saying Afghanistan, or in that case Vietnam, might be winnable. Uh, that is probably so. But what you're saying is that the president, in that case Johnson, the president, in this case Obama, is misleading the public every time he says that these incremental increases are supposed to do anything uh, that will have anything that will let look me, like anything me, like victory. Now, he can, like victory, yes. Now, what you can do and what Johnson did do and what I'm sure he can do in, in Afghanistan is stay there, postpone any bottom-line calculations here, any uh, summing up, uh, anything that would make it look as though he had failed or quit or given up or been weak. What he can do is simply stay in Kabul and do, and do raids and whatever into the countryside of the kind that I participated in quite a bit in Vietnam. He can keep that doing indefinitely for, as the uh, incoming Army Chief of Staff in Britain suggested recently, he can do it for 40 years. And it won't be Obama, but it'll be his successors, and his successors will have the same incentives as Obama, which is not to appear weak, not to be challenged, uh, not to suffer the fate, let's say, of a Van Jones in his own right uh, and lose office. Uh, he can stay there saying, I'm being tough, I'm being weak, I have, I'm being strong, I haven't given up. People will die on both sides, but uh, maybe not so many that the public can't uh, stand it. And uh, in other words, we can keep up a stalemate for a long period. And if that's all he's aiming at doing, he can do that. But the public this time should have a clear opportunity to judge whether they think that is the right course for us to do. You may get this sense here that I feel it is not as it was in Vietnam. Um, yes, it would be risky politically for him to get out of Afghanistan next year. There would be risks in it for him, except that he should ask himself two years from now, will I be happy that I didn't get out uh, or will I wish that I'd gotten out? In Vietnam, there was scarcely a year in which it would not have been better for mm -hmm. the U.S. to have gotten out a year earlier.
Yeah, I, I recall a, a scene of you being interviewed just after you've released the papers or perhaps when you're going to trial and someone says, why have you risked, in your case, risked your career and perhaps life imprisonment? And you say, you know, how could you not risk it? What I said was, wouldn't you go to jail to help end this war? Right. Well, it's turned out, unfortunately, I have to say, 40 years later, uh, not, not many people are willing to risk their careers to save any number of lives. I'm sorry to say that. It's, I don't understand it yet. It's not, uh, it's not hard to understand why people would not flock to be on trial facing 100 years prison. That's understandable. Most people wouldn't want to do that. I'm surprised that, that it's almost nobody. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not talking about prison. People who knew about the torture, who knew about the detention, who knew that Iraq was going to be a disaster. And I'm, I'm sure there were thousands of people in the Pentagon alone who knew that. How many of them risked their career to tell the Congress that uh, in time to stop it? And the answer is essentially none. That's, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, and I don't even understand it, why, why it's that way. But uh, they could do better. I liked what you said earlier. We can do better. Yeah. I, I was doing my best when I was at Rand and when I was in the Pentagon, when I was in Vietnam. I was as patriotic then as I am now. I was as conscientious. I didn't discover a conscience more recently. But my conscience was so socially constructed as do what the boss says, do what the president wants. Okay. Um, you actually, one other thing, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to get, get to the nuclear issue in a second, although I think we're, we're setting the stage for it, but you, you actually worked with Kissinger during 68 um, and taking the information which you later released to the public and using it as an argument with Kissinger that Vietnam was a folly and he was not receptive. So you worked hard inside before you ever came to the point where you would uh, uh, take the risk and break the law. Yes, absolutely. The, when I was a consultant, when I was in the Pentagon, it seemed how could you possibly better influence policy for the better? How could you do it as well outside conceivably as inside? And that meant that you accepted the conditions of being listened to inside and being part of the policy process, which was to keep your mouth shut uh, to the public, to let the president and his public affairs, his PR people, present the story to the public without any interference from you. Even when you knew the public was being lied to, Congress was being unconstitutionally manipulated and bypassed, and we were heading over a cliff that we were heading for disaster. Even if you knew that, and you know, you're, you know, you might be wrong, uh, you might not know everything, you don't know everything, you know that. But your best information tells you, this is something I know about, and I know we're heading for disaster. As I say, I know that thousands of people knew that about Iraq and knew that about Vietnam. And yet, I and the others kept our mouths shut year after year and did nothing to alert the public because we thought, well, you know, it's for the president to decide these things. Uh, what is Congress's parochial, Congress's uh, short-term thinking, politically oriented domestic politics? Can't rely on them. What I learned from Vietnam was that our founders had a very good idea. 
when they constructed our, actually when they wrote the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, and they gave the power of war and peace to Congress. We've gotten away from that. But the idea of that was that Congress declares war, and that really meant Congress decides whether we go to war or not. There's People argue about that, but I think the, the intention of the founders was clear, and for very good reason. You shouldn't leave these decisions to one man, whether that man is George W. Bush or Lyndon Johnson or Barack Obama, uh, that really you'll do better. You won't be guaranteed to do it right, but you'll do better if there's more public information on that and Congress knows what they're getting into. Very good. Uh, that's the voice of Daniel Ellsberg. I'm Terry McNally. This is Free Forum, uh, a documentary about uh, Daniel's life and work, The Most Dangerous Man in America. You can learn more about that at uh, themostdangerousmaninamerica.com. Uh, online publishing, uh, The American Doomsday Machine, his memoir of America's nuclear policy over the last, uh, well, uh, in its uh, all of America's nuclear policy at uh, truthdig.com, Bob Shear's website, and at uh, ellsberg.net. Let me actually, so at a certain point you've worked within, you've worked within with the work you win. What is the moment when you decide you will break the law, copy the papers, and uh, put them out? You know, Strangely enough, in this country, I didn't break the law. I assumed there was a law that I was breaking, that we had the equivalent of an official secrets act, but we don't. The First Amendment has always uh, been regarded up till now, or almost always, as precluding the kind of official secrets act that criminalizes uh, putting out any classified information of the kind that Britain does have, and most countries in the world do have. So there I would have been clearly breaking the law. Here I thought I was wrongly because I didn't know much about the First Amendment. I didn't think that the Constitution had much bearing on what I did. I worked for the president, basically, and we were beyond all that. So that was a very familiar feeling to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think about the oath I'd taken to the Constitution or what that, that, that might mean. But, you know, in our last few minutes here, it occurs to me I'm, I'm having this interview in, in Los Angeles, for Los Angeles, and... Uh, possibly speaking to some people at RAND. And I haven't been able to speak to people directly at RAND for 40 years. I haven't been allowed in the building, actually. Uh, I was in once and was quickly ordered out by the president of RAND about 10 years ago. So I haven't had the chance to really either share my experiences or let them express their uh, great, uh, in, in many cases, uh, feelings of anger and betrayal and uh, disagreement. With me, I haven't. I'd be glad to have them let them have the chance to vent at me, but that hasn't come about. It might come about this month. It occurs to me because uh, I was just realizing the other day this theater is just a block or two. That's right. From the Rand Corporation, wouldn't be too hard for them to get over to it in their lunch hour or right after work, or it really should be during work because it's it's part of their uh, <laughs> should be part of their work, but. Um, I am so anxious for them to see this film uh, in the sense that I wish I'd seen something like it much earlier. Uh, I'm not sure there, there haven't been too many films like it. Uh, the Insider is uh, not a bad one about the guy who realizes, uh, Wellander and uh, Merrill Williams, who realize that they're working in the tobacco industry for a corporation that is selling a carcinogenic, 
product to teenagers. That's right. And spills the beans. He's a whistleblower. There are a couple of folks in the health insurance industry or just out of the health industry who've just retired who have gone public with some of their behavior. Um, Listen, after the show, let me, tell me more about that, because I like to follow up. Okay. I, I like to be in touch with whistleblowers in general, and they're, they're my heroes, and I like to share uh, and help them. To okay. So I'll tell you what, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that by, let's do that by email afterwards. Now, let me, let me give you a chance, because we're down to about five minutes left. And, well, and I've been, I just follow up on what I was just saying? Yes. It occurred to me the other day, I'm so anxious for uh, RAND people post to have a chance to have at me. Yes. And ask me questions. Uh, we're going to do this Q and A after several showings. I don't think it's set yet exactly at the Lemley Theater, and it's a couple blocks from Rand. Uh, I'm it occurred to me last night. I'm prepared to stake, uh, try to arrange that Rand people, if they show their ID card, can get into those things half price <laughs> or even free. I'll, yeah. I'll make up the make it free myself if I have to. Yeah, so yeah. Just to do this, and. Uh, I'm going to try to arrange that, uh, arrange that somehow, so we can get them over there for the Q and A sessions and uh, have this discussion. Wonderful! I, I so there, there you go, Rand. You are invited. Um, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, the memoir you're beginning. Your, your yeah. website, uh, Ellsberg.net, some other sites, including TruthDig.com, will start regular installments of your memoir of the nuclear or the America Doomsday Machine. It's going to be an internet book reflecting your earlier classified work and 40 years of research. And I'm going to read one quote and then let you take off. To under, this is a quote from you. To understand the urgency of radical changes in our nuclear policies that may truly move the world toward abolition of nuclear weapons, we need a new understanding of the real history of the nuclear age. And I plan over the next year before the 65th anniversary of Hiroshima to do my part in unveiling this hidden history. What should people expect uh, in that memoir? Well, uh, some surprises, I think. It's going to be bad news in a lot of ways, and not only about... Uh, the United States, I have to say, it's, it's very disheartening to realize that humans did this, that our species has actually constructed two doomsday machines in uh, Russia still and in America. Uh, the reason for that description, which is a Dr. Strangelove kind of description, mm-hmm. or, or Herman Kahn, it came out of Russia, right. actually, uh, of, a, of something that would destroy either all or most life on Earth and uh, possibly on a false alarm with a great deal of automaticity in the system. Uh, this does exist, actually. Strange Love, as a movie, I regarded at the time as a documentary. <laughs> and what I mean by that is going to be spelled out in, in issues to come. But one aspect, well, two aspects of that are in this first installment coming out this week. One, that if we had launched our forces and... Uh, in a variety of circumstances, a conflict arising over Berlin or Yugoslavia, conceivably even Iran. But if we found ourselves fighting Soviet troops anywhere in the world, our plans in 6061 under Eisenhower and early Kennedy were to launch all of our forces without reserve at at a given target system, which included every city in Russia and China. And the the Joint Chiefs of Staff estimated in response to a question I drafted for Kennedy, President Kennedy to give them, estimated that the consequences of their doing that would be that we would kill about 600 million people or 100 holocausts, 100 times 6 million of the holocausts. That was, as I say, a, 
a, a startling discovery that I made in 1961. And I'll add to it one thing that I just deal with briefly in this first installment, and I'm going to deal with much more in the next installment. I also discovered that President Eisenhower, and reported to the Kennedy administration, which didn't know it at the beginning, that President Eisenhower had delegated authorization to launch nuclear weapons in a number of circumstances, not all circumstances, but if communications were out with Washington, or if the president were incapacitated, or if there just weren't time to, uh, to get authorization from Washington, President Eisenhower had given advance authorization to all of his nuclear-capable theater commanders, from the Strategic Air Command to SACUR in Europe, Pacific Command, and so forth. The Atlantic Command. In other words, there were a number of four-star admirals and generals who had their fingers on the button. But worse than that, or that might have been inevitable. It had its dangers, but there was, it was uh, probably essential. They had, in turn, with his approval, subdelegated that to commanders below them, like the Seventh Fleet in the Pacific. That put more fingers on the button. Delegations went down below that. How many fingers are on the button right now? I will make a strong guess that Barack Obama has not seen a figure. Wow. It would be hard to give him a figure. And he has not made a study of that. I say that because I know the other presidents who maintained this system from then till now. And I know how much looseness and ignorance and uncertainty there was in that system for at least the first three of those. I know it directly in particular for Eisenhower. I'll tell you what, Daniel, I've got to let you go, but that's quite, if you'll pardon the expression, quite a bombshell um, that, in fact, you have in pretty good authority that there are many people who actually have their fingers on the trigger. So again... I want to raise that question for Congress to get at, right. for Congress to get at and find out for the first time in the nuclear era. Who's, who's got their fingers on the button? The site is ellsberg.net. The American Doomsday Machine Insider's Memoir of the Nuclear Era begins soon there and at truthdig.com. The documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, opens in Santa Monica later this month. The benefit premiere is the 23rd. Rand, folks, you are invited, and you're invited for free or half price. If you want to read my recent articles, check terrymcnally.net. Search me on alternate.org or huffingtonpost.com. You can listen to this week's conversation and many others at the podcast. You can also sign up to have it delivered to you weekly, or you can sign up by emailing me at T.E. McNally, that's one word, T.E. McNally at Mac.com to get weekly announcements of who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and some background on the issues. Thank you to G, my engineer, Stan Mizrahi in production, Matt Perez in traffic, and to you, my listeners. Thank you, Dan Ellsberg. Keep up the good work. 911, what's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken and people are dying. Welcome to Code WAC where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what exactly is a doula, and how does it differ from a midwife? How can doulas support those who are most likely to die from giving birth? To find out, we spoke to Stannis Askew, a full-spectrum doula in Southern California who helps families from conception until after birth. She works with Frontline Doulas, a perinatal health program connecting black families with black doulas. Welcome to Code Wax, Stannis. Overall, maternal mortality rose sharply during the height of the COVID pandemic. 
And today, black women in America are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. What factors do you think contribute to this? And how could having a doula on board help? Great question. And actually the reason why I got into doing what I do, doing this birth work, the factors that I think contribute to it is the lack of education as far as the medical staff and the courtesy or listening to the patient as far as medical and patient in the hospital setting. So I think that's what contributes to it. Black women tend to not be heard. It's You have a higher pain tolerance. So then when you say I'm in pain and I need something, it's you're okay, just push through it. When in truly there's something wrong and that's what I'm telling you. So listen to what I'm saying and evaluate me versus just assuming my pain tolerance is higher and I should just push through it. That does happen. And I think as far as doulas being present, they can help be the advocate for the patient. They don't have the right to speak on behalf of the patient, but they can educate their patient to make sure that they are asking the right questions or to be seen appropriately. Or even if it's not the patient themselves, the family member that also may be supporting them, give that advice to them. So it's an advocate role, an educational role that a doula would play. Black women not being seen and heard. That sounds like racism to me. I would definitely call that racism. And I think society, we say, oh, we've, we've come a long way that racism doesn't exist when in reality it does. It's strong and it's prevalent. Let's just call it what it is and move forward. So we just need to acknowledge it. Right. And so when you said that the medical staff assumes a higher pain tolerance, is that because these patients are Black? It is just truly based upon their physical appearance. I've had a, a mentor of mine actually worked for a hospital in a different capacity, went in to have her child there at the hospital and was told, you're okay, your pain's not that, it's not that bad. How do you know what my pain is? You're not in my body, but you're okay. And you guys can tolerate more. She's an employee of this hospital. A colleague of hers tells her this, doesn't know clearly who she is at that point, but just to blatantly say, you all can tolerate more, you're okay, your pain's not that bad. And this is while she's in labor? In labor, it happens, and I myself haven't had any children as of yet, but I have heard the same story from some of my mentors, from clients, from other Jews clients, that it's truly they walked in. My actually even I do have like some relatives themselves that 40 years ago, same thing, and in California, Northern California, walked in, was told same thing. Like you're okay, you can tolerate more, and was denied the epidural at that point in time when they <laughs> were like, and then birthed a 10 pound child. <laughs> Mind you, that happens more regularly. I think now we're speaking out more about it because there's a need to speak up because it's not okay. Right. Has that ever happened to you where you witness somebody say, oh, you're fine. You don't need that pain medicine. I have had some non-Black clients and have can tell you same hospital, same doctor, same staff, maybe not the same nurse, but a difference in the way my client was treated in the sense that 
the non-black client was talked to more and like here's what we're going to do gave the courtesy of this is why we're going to do this explanation on why we're doing it when we're going to do this we're going to give you some time versus coming in for my black client and where are you at okay let's we're gonna just do this and talked I witnessed it. Like I'm really sitting in the same hospital. I was here two weeks ago, a month ago, whatever the case may be with a different client. And the only thing that's different is the color of my client's skin, the racial background. Thank you, Stannis Askew. Do you have a personal story you'd like to share about our WAC healthcare system? Contact us through our website at heal-ca.org. Find more Code WAC episodes on progressivevoices.com and on Nurse Talk Media. And make sure to subscribe to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar.